A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery and sometimes the misery of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Hello, my friends. Today, my guest is Sophie Chech, founder of Shape House, an urban sweat lodge, and author of The Power of Personal Accountability, Achieve What Matters to You. Sophie is working on a new book that will maybe be out by the time you hear this. In the interview, she won't tell me the title. It's still a working title, evidently. At any rate, Sophie has degrees in business, psychology, and journalism. She has given a couple of TED Talks, one called Learning Curves, one called Happy Parents of Children Who Live Out Loud. In this interview, we explore the fact that Sophie used to weigh more than 350 pounds, but she's lost and kept off more than half that weight. I ask her to share with me the mindset and behavior that allowed her to achieve such a massive transformation, knowing that pretty much every one of us has at least one area of our lives in which we want to make a similarly significant change. We explore emotions, learning how to love ourselves, and the power of integrity to transform our lives. Sophie shares this idea, very powerful, that we are in charge of our lives right now, and it's not a rehearsal. We also talk about forgiveness and a shift in perspective that Sophie has used to improve the quality of every one of her relationships. She also shares with me a question that she asks herself consistently to make good decisions. We, of course, explore Shape House, this urban sweat lodge, and what it's like to be inside an infrared sauna, what it is, why somebody would want to. Hint, it feels good. It clears your mind. It deepens your sleep. It helps you feel light, which explains why Sophie has eight locations now between California and New York. I asked Sophie to share the story of how and why she started this business and how she persisted to make it a significant success even when the people around her didn't understand it or think it would be successful. It's with that that I am very pleased to introduce to you my new friend, Sophie Cheech. Sophie, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Sophie, what's life about? <laughs> Service, laughing, playing, growing, learning, sharing, contributing, um, expanding. My, I love the idea that I finish every day with knowing more and loving more than I did the day before. So by the end of life, I should be pretty set. <laughs> sounds, sounds good to me. With a response like that, that's how I know we're going to be great friends. <laughs> exactly. That's when you started by saying I'm interested in you know, service. It was like, all right, well, service is my motto and has been since I was very young. So, yeah. I understand you have a background, your education. Of course, there's the academic portion, then there's the real life portion. You have degrees in journalism, in business, in psychology. Mm -hmm. You've been an author. You've written a second book that you're about to publish. I want to ask you about that. 
But I want to start with something you talk about in a TED talk that you gave, which was the fact that you used to weigh more than 300 pounds. Mm-hmm. 350, actually. Mm-hmm. That is unbelievable. And you've lost more than half that weight and you've kept it off. Yes. Tell me what happened, like, how did you do that? What was that about? What was life like at that weight? What's it like now? You know, it's, thank you for asking that. I didn't think we'd go there. It's, um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's almost like having two lives. Think of it that way. Like you would wake up tomorrow and you're an old Asian lady. You know, it would be like, what life is that from having been? What that you would are. be pretty wild for me, especially. <laughs> exactly. So my point is in this particular culture to be 350 pounds versus, you know, 160 that I'm now, it, it literally is like a different, like waking up when it didn't happen overnight, obviously, but the experience of what I live now versus what I lived then is like having a different life entirely in the way the buying of clothes, the sitting on planes, the dating, the knowing who I am, the being perceived by others one way versus another, everything that you relate to the world in a one way, I relate it to the world in two different ways very much. So that's one answer. There's so much we can talk about. Yeah, I'm really intrigued when you say knowing who I am, because clearly there's an identity associated with both of those. And part of what intrigues me so much about this as well is that, you know, there's the external observable aspect of this. And in your case, it was very physical. It was very Very observable, (laughs) very observable. But I think we all have these kinds of things in our lives. There's a spiritual or emotional equivalent of being 350 pounds. And we want to be different. We want to live that other identity that is also inside us. But we don't, I think, in many cases know how or we know how, but we're afraid. And so beyond even the weight loss itself, what I'm really interested to know, and I suspect people listening would want to know is like, how, like, how did you make such a massive change. What do you say to others who who want to do the same thing in some area of their life? I love that you're starting there too, because I remember being 18, 19, young. I wasn't 350 then. I gained more after, but I was already like in the 250, which by the way, I'm from Paris, which I don't know if you've ever been, but 350 pounds in Paris is like 700, you know, somewhere else because people are so thin and so obsessed with thinness and um, so it was even more. You know, Which is so. amazing to me that there aren't more 300 pounders because the bakeries really are so delightful. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and, and they eat slower and they eat with pleasure and they eat with like, more, you know, it's like it's an experience to eat in France when here people down their food in their car at the, you know, it's not an experience that's remotely, you know, enjoyed and taken the time for. And I think that plays a huge part. And they eat fat. And for the longest time, America didn't eat fat. And now it's back, you know, with the work that Dave Asprey has been doing with uh, Bulletproof, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Yes. Um, so one of the things that struck me when you're asking is remembering being, like I said, 18, 19, and I went to therapy. And my therapist said something that really literally changed the course of my life around all this is she spoke to the notion that I was actually honest, that my weight showed and maybe another one is an alcoholic or another one is a work alcoholic or another one is, you know, angry at everybody or another one lives a really miserable life inside or whatever it is, mine was showing. And it was something very admirable. And the way she said it to me just somehow shifted the, the relationship I had with myself because she was right. And, and I am a very honest person and I'm not going to, mind you, I smoke three packs a day when I was a smoker. So I tend to do things. You go for it. 
So I'm glad you're asking because I think I'm a good person to discuss, you know, how do you change things? Because they were pretty dramatic and pretty far from the norm, you know, and far from the center, at least of, of health or healthy habits. So one of the layers that interests me in the work that I did was to look at it as a physical, emotional, mental, and to some degree, spiritual um, process. And so one of the things that was occurring as I was losing the weight was I could see that if I solved something physically, so if I say lose 20 pounds, lost 20 pounds, but I didn't adjust my emotional and my, almost like think of it as like these bars, right? It's like, like the first bar, the physical's done, and then the mental would have to catch up and the emotional and the spiritual, like all of that had to come to a certain similar maturity because otherwise, right? Like I would, I would just go back to the start. And so I, 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 I saw very quickly that it was a holistic approach and you could not do it. Like people are like, well, what do you eat? And I'm like, well, that's 10% of the problem or the situation, you know? And so to look at it holistically was probably one of the gifts that I was able to see that very, very quickly. And I, and I would think that's true for everything. So if there's a job you don't love, you can look at it holistically. Like what does it give you? What does it doesn't give you? And what, how, who can you talk to that could help that piece or this piece? Like you can't, I don't think we can solve ourselves ourselves like there really is in praise of coaches and healers and anyone out there that's you know doing something to move people's needles i don't go to the dentist saying that i can fix my own teeth right i don't i don't operate on my own heart it's like some people have done that and they've studied something and for some reason we don't look at psychology or mental construct the same way and it should be looked at the same way and i don't say i'm not saying go to therapy everybody but I'm saying do something that sheds light and helps you from the outside to look at what you do and can say, hey, have you, you know, you're walking on your head. Have you ever tried walking on your feet? You know? Yeah. So a version of that. So one, one of the stories that I heard was this experience about one night you pulled a chair up to the refrigerator. <laughs> Where did you hear that story? <laughs> <laughs> Will you tell me about that? <laughs> So, yes, it's, I, I kind of attribute it to the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning, whatever we want to call it, but definitely a before and after moment where I went to my refrigerator, which I would do a lot at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. I would wake up and I would feel feelings and not know what to do with them, and I would just go to the refrigerator and eat my heart out because that's all I knew to do. And um, one day... Uh, the day after I did one of the worst ones where I ate everything in sight and really made myself quite sick. And yet the next day I was doing it again at two o'clock in the morning. And I, and I said to myself in a really sweet, I, don't, I still don't know exactly where those voices come from. You know, you've done a lot of work, you know, it's like there's an intuition, there's a younger part of us, there's, I don't know, there's something in there that speaks. And it said, you can eat everything you want, but before we do that, can we feel our feelings? And I, and I, you know, was startled, basically, and said, okay, all right, I'll, I'll try. And then I backed off from the refrigerator uh, where I was about to, you know, orgy on everything that was there um, and did that. And, and it was probably one of the most difficult thing I've ever done and the most liberating without a question because I felt, I felt my sadness. I felt my loneliness. I felt the despair of being human. It's difficult to be a human and it's complicated and... Uh. 
you know, I was raised in, a, in an environment that treated feelings as the plague to be avoided at all costs. There was actually a sweet story that tags along with this one where my daughter, years later, was 10. And we went to my parents' house. They have a house in the Alps in France. And we skied. And on that day, my daughter fell. And she hurt. You know, she banged in something. And her lip hurt. You know, whatever. The lip was really hurting. And we came back to the house. And for the next three, four hours... I witnessed the dance. You know, my mother would say, don't cry. Do you want some Nutella? And my daughter was like, no, I'm just in pain. I just want to feel my pain. And my father would come, you know, to the rescue and say, would you like some ice cream? Like it was all about do not feel what you're feeling and put sugar on top of it, you know, to numb what's going on right now. And I, when I saw that, I, I just was really pulled back to all these moments of my life where, Obviously, I would have, you know, the way they were doing it with her was the day, the way they were doing it with me. And mind you, that's how they were doing it for themselves. It wasn't an attack on like, we're going to destroy our daughter, you know, yeah. never, parents never went some maybe psychopath, but mostly our parents don't get up in the morning thinking, well, I'm going to do something to hurt my kid. You know, they're really trying their best and they're yeah. doing what they can. And in this case, sugar instead of feeling was definitely the, the operating manual at the house. Yeah, it's often so much easier to do something other than feel, right? And this experience where something inside you, some voice that night in front of the refrigerator told you, you know, look, go ahead, but (laughs) can you feel your face? Exactly. And it's, there's a, there's also a, a concept for me that's very moving when I started doing that, that being feel my feelings is that they're not as big as we think. They're not as scary. I mean, I know for me, I don't know for everybody and for you, but, but I think part of what happens is we, we think they're going to be so big. There's a sweet um, moment in a movie. Did you ever see Mulan, the Disney movie? Sure, sure, sure. There is a scene where she becomes the guy, right? So she can go to war. And then Mushu, this little, meh, this little dragon, little guy, and he uses, you know, fire and sounds and like this really scary thing, you know, to, to, to scare her, you know, and, and she kind of walks towards the rock where the, the thing is coming from. And all she sees is this little salamander making all this noise, you know. And I, when I saw that the first time I had this, this realization that feelings are a little bit like that, like we imagine them as like these big things that are going to swallow us and our anger is going to take over and we're going to like destroy the world like Hulk and... Whatever, but it's not. It's not because the se- now that I've now that I'm caught up. When it started, it was a little bit overwhelming. I will say that, especially because I was not used to feeling what was happening. Like sadness is a very particular color of experiences inside of ourselves. Now it's probably going to happen in this call. It's like I'll sit here and I'll just like cry for a second. And, and it's like when you do it without without stopping it, without you know preventing it, it's actually a generous, beautiful, relaxing, short, actually, for the most part, experience. And it's beautiful. And I do not know why we developed such a, such a, a, a barrage, you know, to not feel them. So yeah. I'm kind of on a, I didn't realize until this moment, but I think I'm going to become a bit of a crusade for, you know, feel your feelings. Well, yeah. I wondered if that was a part of why you studied psychology, Mm-hmm. You know, and if, I know this saying, and I happen to think it's true that we teach what we need to learn yeah. <laughs> and we're our own worst students. Yeah. Right? Um, but okay. tell me a little bit about from, you know, that moment, um, why you why you took the path you did it academically and how this is a big question then 
and how that's led you to where you are now. I know that covers more than 10 years. Well, but, I believe it. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so I, I actually come from an interesting culture where um, education was important, you know, as a girl, not as important as a guy, you know, like I'm 50 and, in, you know, 30 years ago, women were kind of trained to think that staying home was kind of the deal, right? So I was a little bit discouraged, but also encouraged because smart people, you know, go to school and learn and stuff. But I hated school with such a passion. Why? It was such a misfit. And because I think education is, is, is one particular way to learn. And some kids, it fits really well. And some kids, it really doesn't. And I think if you, like I was too creative, like learning things by heart is like the least interesting thing for me in the in the world. And to have me sit down in like two hours of geography, you know, swallowing data was like pain. It was like, it would be pain today. Like I, I, yeah. you know, it's painful to, to not learn the way, like I'm a learner that loves a conversation. Like you're passionate about geography. You tell me all about it. I can sit there for three hours, but to study some dry fact that I'm never going to use, particularly now, by the way, when we have our phones, Yeah, we used to have to go, you know, to the library to get some data. It's like, now we talk to the phone and the phone tells us before we even can think of the question. And, and, and education is not changing. You know, it's like we're not adapting it hasn't changed in a hundred years and everything else. I mean, as you know, the world has become like my Asian woman for you tomorrow morning. It's like the world is like the black and white. It's like the opposite of what it was. And it's complete, you know, opposite version of itself. And I, I believe that the education today might not be, it might be really good for some kids that are kind of particularly, you know, geared to learn a certain way. I mean, there's all this research I'm sure you're familiar with, with like multiple intelligence and like we don't learn the same way. Some kids cannot learn while they're sitting down. They have to move. And it's like now we have all these kids with ADD. It's like they may not have ADD. They just need to get up once in a while. And I, and I feel like we're, we're, um, we are not. So my particular journey, sorry, I'm back. My particular journey was that I hated school because mostly I hated learning things that were not of interest to me. But as I became more of an adult and I became more interested in topics, I wanted to learn more. So it wasn't an education for me. It was more like, oh, I want to, be a, I want to write. I want to be a journalist. And it's like, well, great. There's a school that teaches you how to, at least the basics of that. And probably the best of my writing did not come from that school, but we'll never know because I did go to the school. And so there's always that thing of like, did you become the result of what you've done or would you have done it anyway? Or, you know, there's this whole big question of destiny, of course, and where we all come from and where we all going, which might be big for right now. But to answer your question, I think when I discovered what I was interested in, I loved going to school and I loved learning and I loved meeting people that were like-minded and exploring um, topics. And so I, I took on whatever interested me. So I was interested in psychology because I actually picked a school that was very experiential. I wasn't sure I was going to practice. I actually didn't practice very much because I wasn't that interested in one-on-one -on -one sitting with people. I became a coach because I was more interested in where people are now. Like I feel like whatever is not resolved from my past is here anyway. Like I don't really need to go I don't need to know what happened when you were five. You, you're doing it with your boss today. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, that, that by the way, if, I think if more people got that, and even the way you said that about whatever is in your past, whatever's not resolved, whatever's, yes. it's all here in the present it's anyway. Here. It's all here right, right now. There's really yeah. no need to, I mean, I don't, I don't, I love people that go to therapy and it's often very good work and I'm not questioning that, but I'm saying there's a shortcut to me where it's like, oh, you're in a relationship with someone, you know, treats you like you don't matter. 
okay, well, what did your mother do? <laughs> yeah. Very far. So I think the studying for me became more of a life practice. Like to this day, my friends are like, why did you go to this workshop? Like, you know so much about that shit. And I'm like, well, that's why I know so much about it is because I continue. It's not a one time, like the brain is, is, is a muscle, you know? Yeah. And so is the heart, by the way. So the emotions and everything, it's all like if I don't feel for a week or two and I make myself not feel as an exercise, I will not exactly remember how to feel. Like we'll start, I'll start to atrophy yeah. in my experience of feeling. There was a guy I interviewed years ago in one of my articles I was writing about this. He's a scientist and he did this experimental research that tears. So if you, t you think of it as like tears is liquid, but if you were to remove the liquid, you'd end up with a powder, like it's salty, right? You'd end up with like a, and if you were to do that on like lots and lots of tears, you'd end up with like a, you know, like a, like a pile of, of sugar looking, you know, white powder. And if you were to give that to a small animal, like a little rabbit, it would die. Like there's something about that if you don't let your tears come out and if you don't let your feelings be ex expressed, eventually it's that level of toxicity. It's, it's, it's a toxin in your body that at first, you know, like everything, it's like it's small, but like, you know, beaches are made of very small things, you know, eventually they become very, very big. So I'm, I'm a big proponent and believer in um, treating everything, like every conversation that needs to happen has to happen and every disagreement we have has to be resolved. Like people are like, well, it's such a small thing. It's like, mm, no, like if you have a small grain of sand in your shoe, you know, you make a hole. Yeah. In your foot, you know? Yeah. So. Okay. So I'm really curious now about the book that you've recently written. Yes. It's been a while since you've written a book and, and I do want to ask you about the book you wrote because it's about accountability. Yes. Which is a super fascinating topic, yeah. right? What do you call it? What's the title? Who'd you write it for? What do you want it to do for them? So the title of my agent has asked me not to... Not to reveal. Put it out. Okay. Team. All right. We're going to skip the title. That we're not doing. But... By the time this comes out, okay, who'd you write it for and what will it do for this reader? I'd be happy to come back and talk more with you when the book is out because I do think that it will have very intriguing. So who the book is for is, is really for anyone who has the topic of weight as an issue, obviously, that will be the direct, you know, it'll be a direct effect on someone who's struggling with finding themselves in front of refrigerators, you know, at 300 and some pounds. Um, but everyone that's been reading it says that, as you said at the beginning of our conversation, said that they may not have a problem with their food, but they could apply it completely to other situations in their lives. And so I hate people who say it's for everyone about everything. Not really, because it's a very poignant book. Like it has, it's difficult to read. Some of my friends have expressed a little bit of, especially people who know me and love me. And some of it is spoken so raw and so honestly and so profoundly that it's some of it is a little bit painful you know because if you care about someone to read some of the struggles they've had um it's painful so it, it's not it's not a it's it's an easy read in some ways because it's all stories and it's all it's it's written like a memoir you know um but it has a quality of you watching someone through a journey of their weight so that's what the book is about it's about both losing the weight but also some of the gaining of the weight like why did I need to build a castle around myself and walked around with such a large amount of cover and protection which 
as you probably know, even if you don't seem to have a weight issue, you know, doesn't work. You don't, you yeah. don't, you don't hide from yourself, you know? Yeah. I, I remember the first time um, someone pointed out that whenever we put on a suit of armor, you know, yes. emotionally speaking, that yeah. it becomes a limitation to our own growth. Yes, yes, it protects us, it serves us in some way, but it also limits us in some way. And it's also, it limits us when we're five, because, I mean, it protects us when we're five, maybe, but there's lots of things we don't need as adults that we did as children, and somehow, I'm sure you've heard of this elephant story, it's one of my favorite stories, where in a circus, they take young elephants, like when they're very, very young, and they attach them to walls with a chain, mm -hmm. and the elephant tries and tries and tries and pulls and pulls, and the chain stays in the wall, because they're small in the wall and the chain, but as the elephant grows, it's less and less of a chain, and at the end, it's like a little rope attached to this little, you know, nothing, and the elephant doesn't try, because it you know, remembers that he couldn't do it. When now he could probably pull the entire building with it, doesn't try to do it. And as people, we end up doing a similar thing. Like as a five-year-old, I didn't know how to protect myself, so weight made sense. But as a 50-year-old, I'm completely capable and able. And yeah. so I think there is, there, some people need a little bit of a reboot, like almost like re-question re the beginning of my work on myself, I used to talk about, I, I would go to the seminar, I would go to a class or whatever, and I would feel like I was taking all these parts of myself as if they were puzzle pieces, let's say, and I would question, I would be like, you, are you mine? Is this something that's really, is this belief mine? Is this behavior mine? Is this response I'm having to something mine? Because if it's not, it could easily be somebody else's and I don't want, I don't wear your shoes. I don't want yeah. to wear your beliefs. You know, I want to make sure that my beliefs serve me. And, and if you don't, you were talking about service earlier, which is one of my favorite words. It's like, you have to start with serving yourself. Like people yeah. that serve others and don't serve themselves, they're martyrs and they, yeah. they can't be of service. Really. They're not of service. They're dealing yeah. with their own need to be appreciated and give meaning to their lives of sorts. But you, it starts with ourselves. And to me, the, the, the onset of serving myself was, who are you? What tr tricks you? What makes you happy? What makes you miserable? What makes you respond like someone hurt you and they just said, it's three o'clock? Yeah. You know, like something completely neutral and you jump off, you know, like an insane person. It's like, why did I respond like that? And people don't seem, often don't seem that interested in figuring out why or what made them, you know, respond that way. And it's fascinating because what else is interesting? Like what, what other mountain is there to climb, right? right. What moon, what yeah. moon is there to go visit? Like, this well, is there's like, always, I mean, there's just, there's always something on Netflix, you know? Like, <laughs> there is, yes. And you know what? I'm not, I used to be a little bit more drastic and like becoming more, Netflix is wonderful. Like I love watching something that's uplifting or funny or challenging or, or makes me, you know, I'm obsessed. Did you see Fleabag? No, I haven't even heard of it. What is it? What is it? You must watch Fleabag. It's this young woman. She's English. I think she's, have you watched Killing Eve? I haven't heard of that either. Oh my. Okay. <laughs> I'm learning a lot here. Keep going. We need, we need to do a little, uh, no. So, I mean, joking apart aside, it's like you, it's all part of it. It's not like all of a sudden now, all I can do is tie my shoes. It's like you tie your shoes, then you put your pants or the other way around. You put your pants, your shoes, put a shirt, put a thing. It's like getting out of your house, meaning getting out in your life is a lot about, can we do all the parts? And some people develop 
you know, their mental capabilities, but they don't do anything with their emotional. Some people are emotional, whatever the word is, like that's all they do is they feel their feelings and that's beautiful, but it's also not holistic and not complete. Some people have no understanding of their psychology, like why they do what they do. And, you know, they find themselves drinking or abusing or yelling or whatever, and they have no idea how they got there. It's like, what else is important? What, what else could you possibly be doing? And yes, in between doing that, you can watch some Netflix. <laughs> yes. So you talk about on this topic of service and the, the importance of serving ourselves, as you're saying, taking care of ourselves as well. I came across an interesting concept that you've talked about, about how in some ways addiction parallels being healthy. Yes. Right. And that was something I'd never thought of it that way. But of course, there's always two sides to a coin. Yes. But will you say more about that? And then, and then I do want to go into like, because of being healthy, if taking care of ourselves is a way we can be healthy as an alternative to addiction, mm-hmm. an unhealthy behavior. If you will, please start with what's this parallel between addiction and being healthy? And then how can we take care of ourselves? Well, addiction is a really interesting concept because it's, to me, it implies that my body is doing something that I can't seem to not do. I know when I was eating sugar, I don't touch processed sugar. I haven't touched processed sugar in some 10, 15 years. Even, so, even in things like ketchup? Like you're totally yes, conscious? I, don't do ketchup. I, I completely do not touch. And the only sugar I eat is fruit and not even much. And I do berries because they, their, their glycemic index is very low. Like I don't, I don't mess with my insulin. That's one of my victories with my body was to understand the chemicals of it and how it functions. And if I don't do protein to start my day by noon, my energy becomes completely whacked and I want sugar and I want coffee and I want all these things. So I don't, I don't feed myself with any substance that alters my state of consciousness. So I don't do coffee. I don't do, so I don't do caffeine in general. I don't do sugar. I don't do weed. I don't do wine. I don't do alcohol. And that's not a, you know, moral, ethical, you shouldn't do it. It's just, I enjoy, people ask me all the time, like, what do you do when you're tired? And I'll say, well, I rest. Like, you know, other people do coffee or they do substances, you know, that pick them up. And it's like, I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't want. That is next level thinking, by the way. <laughs> right? I mean, it's, so anytime, what's that saying that uh, I think it's attributed to Mark Twain that anytime you find yourself on the side of the masses, it's time to reform. Yes. Right? And the fact the masses are using these energy drinks and yes. large amounts of caffeine or stimulants. Yes. You know, and and that's one other way to get, it's like, uh, there, there are reasons. And I think not feeling your feelings, like we were saying earlier, is at the heart of that. I don't want to feel sad. I don't want to feel depressed. I don't want to feel these other things. So these substances are going to help me. So whether I feel depressed, I'll do something that picks me up. If I feel like we're self-medicating all the time, which is really sad because at the end of the day, all I want is to feel my sadness. And all I want is not to feel my sadness because I don't know how to do it. Yeah. But when I learn to do it, and it's a skill, you really, you have to learn to do that because that's not, I mean, I don't know where you were raised, but it's like in France, it is not a response. I'm sad. I feel my sadness. It's I'm sad. How do I hide that? I'm sad. How do I, you know, do something to avoid this feeling right now? It's, it's never like you hear it all the time to kids, you know, like don't cry. It's like, wait, yeah. it's a kid. It's feeling, it's like, let it cry. It's the, you know, so the way it relates to addiction for me is 
the addiction becomes the substance itself. Like when I eat sugar, which I don't, but when I was eating sugar, it's impossible for me to eat a little bit of it. That's why I don't do it. It's not like on my birthday, last week was my birthday, and people were like, have a little cake, it's your birthday. And it was like, I don't do a little bit of cocaine on my birthday. Like, <laughs> it's not like, you know, for me, sugar is no joke. It's like, it's really something... The industry of sugar produced too much sugar and then they started putting it everywhere and it is an addictive substance. And so people don't even realize that's why they down all they down. But it's because physiologically, their bodies is craving it. Like your body develops more candida and candida, you know, from yeast. And then it's, it's a whole, it's literally a chemical process that your body cannot fight. It cannot really resist it. And so knowing that I'm addicted to sugar, I make the choice not to have any because I don't, I don't like what it feels like and I, and I have the power not to do it. And so I don't, I don't have an interest. I think self-love is at the heart of this conversation that we're not exactly naming. Like I used to not like myself, you know, and now I think I'm the most precious thing in the universe. You know? How, uh, that's I love to hear you say that. And I wish everyone, I wish I could say that all the time. You know, I wish everyone on the earth would say that, but how did you make that again? Like, and I know sometimes people who are successful at something is like, well, I, ju- I don't know. I just did it. <laughs> you know, like, oh, I hate when people do that. Yeah. Oh so God, how did you do they that? Dismiss, they dismiss their skill. I don't dismiss it. It's a lot of work. It took me a lot of years to get to a place where I could. So it started with confidence and trust, you know, like I started watching my word like when I'd say I'd do something, I would be conscious to do it. Like, what do you think of your brother who's late all the time? You okay. don't trust him. So, I, this is amazing. So, what I'm hearing you say is that you're, you used to not love yourself. Yes. I used and to now you do. trust myself. Yes. And the first step in your journey to, to really experiencing yourself as precious, which I love. That's such a beautiful way to say it is that you began watching your word or the word I would use, living with integrity. Yes, integrity is exactly the word I was going to go to. Exactly. Like integrity, people think it's for other people. And like, I'm there when I do something that's not positive, that's not constructive, that's not helping anyone, that's hurting me. I'm the one who's doing it. It's like people don't realize. And literally, I think of it as like, who of my friends is late all the time, which is not keeping your word, right? And it's a small one. Like people are used to it. It's traffic. It's like, well, was there not traffic for me? Like I, I counted traffic and I got here on time. And so what happens when people do that, they don't realize is when it comes the time to mobilize, to go do something, they don't believe they're going to do it because they don't have the confidence that they're going to keep the, like when I say I'm going to do something, my entire body, my system, my, my engine, like everything that's inside me, they know. I'm not kidding. It's like, I'm not kidding around. Like, I'm going to write a book. My body doesn't go, well, maybe or I'll sit down. Maybe it's like I sat down for six months and worked for 10 hours a day and I wrote my book. Yeah, that, that's, not- that's powerful because I know, in fact, if I'm honest, I find I still live this way in some areas of my life. It's like, well, if I still feel like it, you know, we'll see that kind of thing. But that's a totally again, a next level way of living that, you know, if you give your word to something, boom, it's done. The way I like to think of it is, and what I'm hearing about you're saying, it's done. It just hasn't happened yet. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that makes a big difference though, because it takes time. You know, like when I started like feeling my feelings, eating healthy, I mean, like I said, it's a very holistic thing and it took 20 different elements for my weight to become something very easy to manage. But 
as it was happening, it takes time to lose the weight. And so even from that consciousness, that was maybe 15 years ago to five years ago, where I would kind of pinpoint, you know, where I feel like I got somewhere. I wasn't completely done, but at least I felt I could buy clothes comfortably. I could sit on a plane without panicking that my seatbelt is not going to close. And, you know, all those things that are like thin people don't really think about, you know, like chairs, you walk in a place and it's like all the chairs have armrests. Well, my ass doesn't fit there. I'm sorry for using that word. My butt doesn't fit there. It's like, okay, well, I need to stand then. And you don't, and you don't, you don't realize that because you don't have to. And it's the same for someone who doesn't hear or someone who doesn't have the sight or someone, you know, everyone has their version of having to adapt in some way. Mine happens to be my weight and, you know, yeah. It, 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 it was what it was. But the point I was going to make is if, if you keep your word, your body starts to respond very differently when you need it. Like when you need to mobilize for something, your body will, will be like, yeah, we keep our word. We do what we say. As opposed to oh, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Like I tell people, do not make commitments unless you are sure that you're going to keep it. Like I'd rather someone tell me, I may have dinner with you. It may not work for me. So maybe we text that morning. I love that. Like, that's one of my favorite things. Because, by the way, I might that morning not really feel like having dinner. Then you live a life that's a little bit more organic and a little bit more based on trusting that somehow, like, it's now, oh, this is so many thoughts. You are so inspiring, Brian. I'm sorry. It's all over the place. I can tell. <laughs> no worries. I can tell. It's, like, really, really inspiring. I'm thinking of, like, one of the ways that I make commitments now is I actually don't make them. And I, and I accomplish a ton more and I deliver a ton more than I ever did, but not under the gun because I would want to respect my word and I would keep my word and do something that I really didn't want to do. And then you end up in a life that's not the life you want. My book, my personal accountability book that you mentioned earlier, it starts with a scene where two old people are on a bench later in life, like in their 90s, let's say, and one says to the other, so what would you have done differently? And it's this conversation of like, what would you have done? Like, would you have stayed married? And the other guy goes on and on about how he wouldn't have stayed married to this woman he didn't love. And he wouldn't have stayed in this job that was boring to him. And he wouldn't have tried to have relationships with people that because they were family members, but he didn't really was able to connect with these people, you know, whatever it was, it, it just, we are, we don't see that we are in charge of our lives. And it's right now, this is not a rehearsal. This is it. Like people are, literally living their lives not seeing that they are the directors and the actors and the production management as yeah. it's happening. But to see that, we've got to take responsibility and that can be scary. Well, not taking responsibility is scarier, no? <laughs> yeah. well, <laughs> the alternative, what's, no, seriously, Brian, what's the alternative? The alternative is you live a life where you, 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 you're sailing a boat that you have no idea where it's going. Yeah, yeah or it's, yeah, it, it is going where other people want it to go. And it's blowing just because someone said, my opinion is this, my opinion is that. And then yeah. there you are, Tokyo, Paris, Morocco. Yeah. I want to go where I want to go. And it's not, it's not an ego. Sometimes, by the way, there's room. There's a lot of room in this particular lifestyle that I have now where others are no longer, it's not longer their opinion that matters to me, but it's their, their advice or their mentoring or their... Um, creative, you know, we brainstorm together and we come up with something, but it's no longer, what is this person going to think if I do that? I don't, couldn't care less about what someone thinks at this point. And it's probably offensive to some people, but. Yeah. Well, so tell me if there's, and I know I'm, I'm kind of pushing you and in, in attempting to reduce something that's 
probably not very simple into a formula <laughs> that others can understand and apply. But to go back to this conversation about the this part about self-love and this integrity being at the beginning, what other steps did you find were necessary along that path for you? I love that. Um, of the unusual ones, because I'm sure you, you've heard a million times many of the other ones, but of, of the unusual ones, I would say forgiveness became a very important one for me. And I would put self-forgiveness up there very high because one of the reasons people have a hard time changing is that they look back and they say, oh my God, I was this person that used to be angry all the time. And so it, instead of letting go of that, their judgment that it would be so awful that they did that, then they stay with the anger to not work the, through the forgiveness of it. Do, do mm. you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Yeah. So forgiveness was really critical for me also because you, a friend of mine used to say like judgment is a poison that you take hoping that it kills the other guy. Mm. And it's true. You know, it's like if I spend my life just judging them, me, it's, it is literally like toxins. Like they've taken pictures of your sales when you have, you know, bouts of judgment or criticism or just harshness vis-a-vis -vis you or somebody else. It's like your sales like start looking like gremlins, like no kidding. Like everyone in there just like, like looks really not happy. And when you say the word, you know, of peace and benefactor and kindness and all these words like yourselves, you know, just start scintillating. Like I'd rather walk around like I'm a Christmas tree, not a, you know, dead plant in a pot in the corner. Yeah, no, no doubt. Well, I love one thing I heard you say once about if you've got 15 things on your list to accomplish, one of those 15 is to care for yourself. Yes. And I know that in our always on, you know, competitive, win at all costs kind of culture that we often give so much that we deplete ourselves. And you made this really wonderful point. It's like, we don't wait till our car runs out of gas right. to fill the car, but we do this with ourselves. How can we quit doing that? And why does it matter that we do? Well, actually, it wouldn't matter if you didn't care to have a life that you love. Like to me, the reason I put gas in my car and, you know, liquids in my windshield and all of that is so that my car runs smoothly and that I, it becomes a non-issue. Like I don't want to have to deal with that the same way I don't want to have to deal with I'm too tired to go to a movie with a friend because I went to bed at three o'clock last night and I drank all this coffee and I'm, I'm all, you know, like taking care of myself ensures a better life. Like I like that life of consciousness, of, of kindness towards myself. Like, you know, I'm sure you've heard a million times, like don't, if you treated your friends the way you treat yourself, you know, you'd have no friends. I don't want that. I want to be my best friend. I want to, I want to be there and support me and not be a bully. Like lots of people treat themselves like bullies, you know, cause maybe that's what they've seen. And Okay, so another quality, thank you for asking that, because another quality is the courage to question what you're doing. And a lot of people, and I use the word courage on purpose, maybe a little provocatively, because it's people don't realize that it takes a little bit of courage to say, hmm, why did I do that? And is there a way I could do that that would be, you know, obtain better results for me, just to have the openness and the honesty to kind of look at the behavior and, and question it because some of them, they're wonderful. Like some of my behaviors I love and I keep them and the ones that I don't love, I 
you know, try to, and at first it's a try because it's a habit to do something. You have to dismember a little bit of the, you have to dismantle a little bit of the system. Like if I bang your knee, your knee will, you know, jerk. There's no question. A lot of our thinking is like that. Like if someone says that, bam, you know, I respond that way. And if someone, you know, does that to me, then boom, it means that, you know. No, it's actually, a lot of it is not true. So it is such a big question you're asking. I, I feel like I'm not exactly answering your question, but. Well, I'm, I'm taking away a lot from what you're saying. And I think that people listening to this will as okay. well. And I know that these things are easy to say and sometimes harder to do. Like to say, oh, well, forgiveness. Forgiveness is a key. It's an important step. But then when it comes to that? of forgive, how do you forgive? You know, that kind of thing. And I think, and this is just my guess, you know, we've all got to find the way to do it that works, you know, for us, what it really means, how to do it. But even hearing someone say, no, you know, this was my transformation and here's what was involved. At least it points people to something, even if they don't know how to do it for themselves. Yes. You know, it validates that it's essential. Some people are going to do it through their religious practices and some people are going to do it through, you know, doing a ritual where they go and burn whatever that person did to them. And, you know, I think maybe um, giving people the benefit of the doubt, giving myself the benefit of the doubt has been a very helpful tool. Like when a situation occurs, like it happened this morning, someone cut me off. In, in the car and I was, you know, driving to come and be with you and I wanted to be on time and I was a little bit of like, well, you know, like I, I didn't panic, but I had a reaction. And then I thought to myself, I don't know this person. For all I know, she just found out her kid is in the hospital and she's rushing to be by her side. Like, would I be upset if that was the, the case? And it's like, no, I would get out of the way so she can get to her kid faster, right? And so we often make movies in our heads of what it means and what the other person is, when really we all trying to survive and, and, and have the best life we can. And it's like, we all, we, I don't attempt to hurt anybody, but sometimes I could be doing something that somehow steps on your toes and it becomes your job to say, Hey, when you do that, it actually steps on my toes. And then it becomes, well, I care enough about you. How would I do that? So I, it becomes like a communication. Like it becomes, you know, when I do that, it doesn't mean that, you know, when I do this one behavior, when I leave the toilet seat up, I don't do that to torture you. I do that because I wasn't conscious in that moment. And I was thinking of something else, which was your birthday dinner next week that I want to try to organize. And then the wife is like, oh, and it's like somehow we don't, we don't do that. Like we assume the worst in people often. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say that was a giant leap for me to start looking at what people do as what if they were doing that to serve me and to, to make me happier? Like, I would, you know, it's a better day for sure. And since I don't know, you know, since yeah. I don't know what motivates them, might as well assume, assume something lovely. Yeah. Assume so. Yeah. Assume something lovely. That's a, that's a wonderful way to say it. And, and a couple of things that come up for me as I hear you share this is one is, you know, I think a lot about consciousness and what it means to be a conscious human being, to live yeah. more consciously. And again, it's like, I don't know, does that mean you drink kombucha and shop at Whole Foods or drive a Prius? Like, I don't know. But I think that these are the things, you know, to, to choose yes. the most empowering meaning, you know, to recognize when we're not, to make a different choice when we are, you know, in that situation. And, and I think as well that, you know, I think to... Tony Robbins work. Mm -hmm. I've done, uh, been a student of Tony's for a few years now. And I love that he ends his seminars with this instruction, make your life a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. 
And I think what you're saying, these are the strokes that do that. You know, there's no, we don't, I don't think we ever have one single act where we step into greatness, you know, and of course, greatness is subjective anyway, but it's through the continued application of what we learn and following our inner voice and our highest light and that kind of thing. So I'm really inspired by the things that you're sharing. And I hope that people listening are as well, because some of these things can be platitudes, can be like, oh yeah, everybody knows that. But then when you live it, when you apply it, or my experience, when you hear it from a certain person, because we all have a different energy. Or sometimes you hear it at a time where it now really means something to you and you're willing to do something with it. When I was in my 20s, trust me, people could tell me all they wanted with their food and their diets and this. I wasn't interested now. I'm like a sponge to every new information I can gather and you know, it, it really depends. I, I like doing the parallel in a sport. Like, how would you become a worldwide, you know, tennis player? Well, you would practice. You would get on the court. You would get your feet on the court every single day for hours and hours and hours. Like, people yeah. want freedom and want, you know, to be expressed or be of service, like all these big words. But it's like, it's like you just said, it's, it's, a, it's every moment of every day, every breath, every, every choice I make, every moment that passes, I can choose. Like the question I often ask myself, is like, what's the highest choice right now? Because sometimes you have two choices and maybe they're not great, either one, but there might be one that's higher than the other. And to me, higher means more loving for the ones involved, more freedom for the ones involved, more, you know, a result that serves more people. It's like I have my particular, you know, values that are important to me. And I think that's maybe one of the first exercises. What are your values? And do you value creativity, which means that, you know, you just do whatever artistic choice you have, or do you value loyalty? And that is what guides, you know, your choices. Like it really depends on what you say. And that's part of getting to know who you are. Yeah. Who are you? Are you someone who's more, you know, interested in following the rules and that is really what brings you joy? Or are you someone that likes to break them and invent ways? And that's, there's lots of things you can do, like profiles and conversation with your friends. Like those are my favorite thing. I sit with my friends and have very, very meaningful conversations. Like, have you noticed any change? I've been working on this thing. Do you notice that I'm less this or more that? Or, and I get incredible feedback from my friends, you know? So the same way I would if I was a tennis player, I would say, can you come to the court to like another good tennis player? And I would say, watch me play. Like, what do you see? You know, like, well, I see that you're, you're holding your racket this way or that way. And, you know, you'd get a lot of speed if you did it this other way. And then I try and then it works. And then it's yeah. like, yay, you know? Yeah. No, that, I love that. And it, that reminds me of the, the saying that the best mirror is often a good friend. Yes. You know, totally. But that, that too, Brian, has to be watched for because when I was in a destructive men- mindset, uh-huh. my friends were matching that. Mm. And so, uh, you know, I, when I was using drugs or I was, you know, smoking a lot or whatever, like my friends were mirrors of that. And they yeah. actually, one of the big challenge that I run into which is probably one of the reasons I moved countries, like I ended up, you know, leaving France to live here in Los Angeles, is because people, people want to match, let's say we were a bunch of smokers, and I quit smoking, I'm disturbing for that group, right? Like, if we no longer, if I'm no longer willing to participate in this self-destructive behavior, those that are not willing to quit smoking, are going to start judging what I do and not want to be my, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it becomes, the mirror is a good example if you make sure that your friends are 
already in a path that, you know, I don't know, a friend who would say, stay in the smoking because I miss you when I go at the break. And people say that, you know, people will want you to stay with their particular limitations so you don't confront theirs, you know? Well, and I think that's the basis of the thought behind this simple saying, misery loves company. Yes, and happiness loves company. Happiness loves company. That's both ways. Like two of my best friends, I just saw them yesterday. It was the birthday for one of them. And it was literally like, what a delicious moment. We were laughing. We were supporting. We were interested in each other. We were like wishing such good things on each other. And it was the most delicious moment. And I know that there are friends that I no longer want to spend time with because they're kind of allergic to happiness and they yeah. sabotage all the time and they, they seem to, it's like they climb a few steps of better and then they, they, they go back. You know, they don't want to. There's a beautiful book you've probably read from um, Gay Hendricks, The Big Leap. Are you familiar yeah. with The Big Leap? The, 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 the Upper Limit Problem. Exactly, The Elp. And by the way, Gay Hendricks is a dear, dear friend of mine. And when I was working on the expansion of my company, which we haven't talked too much about, but I also am an entrepreneur. I've built a company that has 10 stores, you know, that's um, a very successful thing. And I would call Gay and I'd be like, I hit a Elp, like, you know, The Upper Limit Problem. And he would be like, well, let's work on that one, shall we? <laughs> I was really, you were just like helping me expand my ability, my, my capability to actually welcome good in my life had also a muscle kind of, I had to learn to expand it and make it bigger than what I came in this world with. Yeah. Well, that's the journey. That's the journey. That is the journey. So I, I totally, man, we've been talking for almost an hour and I've enjoyed this so much. And there's so much I still want to ask about. I'm just going to acknowledge this, but not pursue it. Maybe we'll come back to it or maybe, maybe there'll be a part two or maybe neither. It's fine. I did want to ask you about the personal accountability model, about yeah. the victim loop and the accountability loop. But I'm going yeah. to just set that aside because I want to get to, I do want to get to Shape House. So I love, in fact, I wondered, you obviously thought about this. You, you seem to be doing a great job with your branding. Um, but this term an urban sweat lodge. Yes. That's, that's pretty awesome. And as one who only recently has had an experience in a sweat lodge, in a Lakota, you know, maybe a traditional Native American sweat lodge last year, um, now my antenna are up. I'm like, ooh, an urban sweat lodge. Tell me more about that. Yeah. It's a beautiful story. So when I was in my early 20s and I was a, a writer for a French magazine, they sent me on a mission to study this guy, Lewis Mel Madrona, who was doing... He agreed um, to be on my show. I love him. I'm reading. I asked him if he'll be in September so I can have time to read all his books. I'm in the middle of healing the mind through the power of story. Yes, anyway, right. that's funny. Okay, that. So, so I, I went totally to interview him. <laughs> okay. beautiful. I went to interview him. He was in Pittsburgh at the time. He's not there anymore, but he was the head of psychiatry, I want to say, in this really large, you know, shady side hospital. And, and I went on, on tour with him to visit some patients and I was watching him work. And some of the work he was doing was using, so his story is incredible, if you can take one second, but he became a doctor, he's an MD and became a doctor from Columbia and Yale and like really, really very, very prominent schools. And then one day, one week, one day there was in one week, one of two women came in for C-sections, you know, delivering babies and decided to do C-sections and two doctors, him and the other guy, basically bit on who was going to go the fastest and went into their operating room and one of the women died. Not the one he was taking care of, but the other one, which definitely 
we don't know. She might have died anyway, but for him, it was like, what are we doing, you know, with, with healing and healing practices? And then in the same week, some guy came in for kidney something and they removed the wrong kidney. And so he had this like awakening of like, what are we doing with this idea of like being practitioners and caregivers? And, and he pretty much went into the mountains and went to visit his family because um, he's a coyote, you know, obviously the, one of the books is called The Coyote Medicine. And so he went to learn, you know, Native Americans' traditions and, and healing modalities. And of course, sweat lodges was one of them. And so when I went to interview him, he invited me to one. And I'm this like girl from Paris, right? Like I don't even, I don't even know how to sit on the floor, let alone, you know, in a room that, you know, tent in a teepee that is like so hot and has no air. But we did it in Santa Barbara in the spirit, in the, in honor of this little boy, Porter, who it's one of my biggest hit that I've ever had with something that happened. Like probably one of my first spiritual stories actually, where, um, we did, a, we did a lodge in honor of this boy who was born, you know, somewhat healthy. Uh, and then something happened where he became very sick and was having seizures at night and his teeth were growing the wrong way. And he was just like his digestive system was completely, I mean, basically they were saying he was probably not going to pass 10 and he was four, five at the time I met him. So we go to Santa Barbara to do this sweat lodge and the mother handed me to him, him to me, and I'm holding him and he's crying and he's obviously in pain like at all times. I mean, you can see that he's just really trying to manage the, the cramps and the pain that he's having everywhere. And we, we locked eyes, this child and I, and he stopped crying. And we just were there together in this like incredible moment. And this mother looked at me like, you are welcome in my house any day. Like, <laughs> you are just a permanent guest in my house. And then we went to do, so the women attending the fire and, you know, Lewis is chanting over there and like doing his practices to prepare for the lodge. And this incredible, the salamanders, I remember, run through the thing and he was all excited because in his culture, it means something, I forget what, but it's like transformation is ahead of us and beautiful thing. The lodge was six hours. So I stayed sitting on the floor with literally no air to breathe. Like you like you go to the ground to like try to get a little bit of air. I remember peeing on myself because you can't get out. And at some point, you know, whatever. And we're chanting and we're having this incredible, ex I mean, literally one of my most incredible experiences. I'm starting to sing in Hebrew. I don't even speak Hebrew, but I'm like chanting these, like something I heard when I was a child. And he's like chanting with me. And at some point, six hours later, <laughs> which has something to do with urban, the word urban in the sweat lodge currently. But at some point he gets clarity of what he needs to do and he runs to the kitchen and he removes this protein thing that the kid was eating that clearly was not good for him. And Porter is alive and it's 25 years later. Wow. And it's just one of the, literally it's the first time that I touch with my own fingers the power of listening and intuiting and trusting and opening yourself to receive wisdom that may come from somewhere else than, you know, school. And, and the sweating, the, the symbol of sweating was very much about the, the releasing of the toxins, the releasing of the noise, almost like the metaphorical noise allowed him to hear this wisdom. And when I started Shape House, it was really very much in honor of him and Porter 
and all of this culture. And so we called it an urban sweat lodge because, of course, it's not, it's certainly not a TP in the mountains anywhere, but it has to do with, I didn't want to start a company that had to do with like sweat so you're prettier and younger and blah, blah, you know, thinner. Like it's important, of course, you know, vanity and the way we look, of course, that's all part of our culture. We have bodies. But to me, I, if I had to commit my life to something, it had to have, you know, gravitas and, and I love this experience so much. And we actually had the first one we opened, we hired this young woman to paint the name of the tagline on the wall right in front of one of the houses. And it was going to say an urban sweat lodge. And this woman comes to do, she's like one of these people that can paint, you know, on the outside, like a, like a sign maker, whatever they call themselves. And so she comes and I tell her what we're doing. And she's like, I can't do that. And I was like, why? And she's like, because it's like, it's not your culture. It's like, basically you're stealing from this culture. And I was like, wow, like what a, what a distance from what intention was. And it'd be like saying you stole from breathing, you know, it was like, to me, it was just such a, I had had such a personal experience with it. And so I, and she said, my, my partner, my, my, in life, my romantic partner is, um, I think he was a Lakota. And she was like, I can't come home and tell him that I did that for you. And I said, well, would you let me meet the guy? And she was like, okay, yeah, maybe. So she goes home, talks to the guy, brings the guy. The guy is like three times my height. I'm not kidding. Like the guy was so, I mean, I'm kidding. But he was so big and so like, 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 a, <laughs> like he looked like a pantry, you know, just really solid guy. And he asked that she leaves, that him and I would have time alone. And he said, he sits down with like, this really big body and he says, tell me what you're about. What is this about? And I poured my heart to this guy and I just told him who I was and what I was about and what was my blah, 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 blah. And I just told him my whole life. Like, it's just like, in, you know, and he stood up. He didn't say much, but he stood up and he brought her back in and he said, not only I would like you to do the sign, but I would like you to not charge her. Wow which is to this day, like one of the most, I told you I would cry before the end of today. <laughs> there it is. It was just so moving to, like he saw my heart and he saw my intentions and he blessed me, you know? Mm, that's beautiful. And that, that was the first one. That was it. That was so the first that's, one. That's right there from the origin. in the <laughs> And you're growing. Yeah, so we have nine. Well, we had 10 because we have uh, one that we only open in the summer in East Hamptons. There's five in New York and there are five in LA. And we are growing. We're going to go national, probably international. People love sweating now. And when I first started, oh my God, I would go to dinners and people would be like, what are you up to? And I tell my story and they would look at me like, what are you doing? This is the craziest story we've ever heard. And, you know, people would never pay to come sweat and but I created, I think I was inspired. When people ask me where the idea came from, I often think about someone who wrote a song. You know, like at some point you hear something. Again, we don't know where it's from, but you hear a melody or you hear a word or you hear something. And it's like you follow the trail. You kind of like you pull the thread and you kind of go, what is that? And what does that look like? And how does that? And then it's a creative process. And to answer the question you didn't ask about the book earlier, similarly, it's like, what's the next word? What's the next sentence? What's the next? paragraph that's going to help me convey what I want to say. And starting a company is very much that, you know, for me, it was very much a, a journey of, and what if we did that? And then I was one day, I was, I'll never forget, I was sweating. And I said, oh, it'd be so nice if someone brought me like a wet towel that was like a little cold right now. And then I sat there and I was like, well, 
I can have someone bring me that. And so now we have in our protocol that midway when it becomes a little harder and you're sweating, you know, there, um, someone brings you this like wet and cold towel and it's like delicious. And it was all born out of, wouldn't it be nice if we had tea afterwards, you know, whatever. But all of it was created out of listening and, and letting it tell me what it wants. Like when you think of it, companies, books, they have an entity of their own. It's like yeah. you're birthing them. You know, your children are not yours. You know, your companies are not yours. Yeah. It has that same quality of like, I, I did what I did to give it life. And now I'm watching it do life and I serve it. You know, like people often would say like, how do you know how to grow? And how do you know how to do the next city and the next whatever? And I'd be like, I ask it. Honestly, I ask Shape House, like, what do you want? What's next for you? You know? Oh, that's amazing. That does make me think of something that Lewis Mel Madrona talks about that every, um, he says every illness and every story has its own spirit. Yes. And in the same way, perhaps every, every company, mm-hmm. you know, every, everything. Um, so for people who, who have listened and, you know, they probably heard some of this in the intro, but they don't know exactly what we're talking about, <laughs> yes. what, what um, Shape House is. People can come sign up for a 55 minute session. Yes. Right. So will you describe what is the experience like and why would people want to do it? Yes. So the, uh, the, so when you walk in, you will be explained everything that's going to happen in the next hour. And then you are being walked in an area where you can change. So the sweats happen dressed and then you are being wrapped very caringly in these beds that are an infrared technology that will very quickly and very efficiently and very healthfully will heat up your body from your core. Like one of the biggest surprise for me when I started doing them is I, my head would be drenched and my, my head was not even in the bed. Like it wasn't exposed to the heat. So who was heating that? And so I started to study and I talked to a lot of doctors when we opened, when we first started doing it and engineers. And it's really because the way that technology works is that it heats up your body and then your body heats itself up. Because it's responding like sweating is a response to heat. Your body has a fever, right? And when you're not well, and then you sweat to break that fever and to cool your body down. And so that's what's happening. We're inciting your body to think that it has a fever somewhat by the exposure to this heat. And then it breaks a sweat to like cool you down basically which is why at the end of it it's it's a natural effort like at the end your heart is beating like crazy because to cool something down it's a lot of effort like think of it as the air conditioner at your house when it's hot and it kicks in it's a lot of dollars for the air conditioner because it's a lot of energy to cool something down and that's what your body is burning while you're in the bed so once the lady we all mostly have staff that are women but when you get wrapped in you get given a remote control that's part of the my desire was to do something that was really healthy, but also really fun and entertaining. And so you lay down and you watch the Netflix we talked about earlier. <laughs> you can catch up on a show and you have your headset and you're basically laying there for an hour, sweating your head off. When you're done, you will be drenched, you know, from head to toe. Maybe not your very first one, but certainly after that. And the, 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 the purpose is that when you're done, someone comes and brings you to a relaxed room where you get to sit and have tea and oranges because we were recommended to give you vitamin C when you're done with your sweat. And in that 55 minutes, you've burned, you know, a thousand calories. You've regenerated some of the, the very um, 
like your organs get depleted from the life that we live. And so when you do something like this, you restore by repairing and resting your organs and be able to, it's like restoring a muscle. You know, in order for you to be able to use your muscle, you have to treat it well to begin with. And what the sweat does is it resets your body to almost kind of um, the way it was before you abused it, you know, in some way. So what we do is not so much healing you but we allow your body to heal itself like we give your body the ability back to heal itself because when you think of it right now we're breathing we're digesting like you're moving your head you're thinking you're processing what i'm saying your feet are probably moving a little bit all of that your blood is pumping your heart is beating it's like all that stuff is going on we don't do anything for that it's just going on we get in the way of that we get in the way of this incredible magic that our bodies are doing the whole time we're alive, it's like, think of it, like from the moment you start beating your heart to the second you stop breathing, this whole thing is going on. And yet we mistreat it. Like to get back to your image of the car, instead of being respectful of this heart beating, we pump it like crazy, we push it, we stress it, we eat too much sugar and we drink too much coffee and we do all that stuff. And this poor heart is like, okay, I'll try to help you anyway, you know, but it's exhausting. Yeah. Like we literally, like we, we, we do a lot to like almost like tie a bow, you know, for our feet and then we try to run. It's like, well, that's not very efficient, you know? Yeah. No, it is a miracle. All these things that are going on without our conscious awareness until there's something wrong. Yeah. <laughs> something's not exactly. working exactly and then we go all you know bonkers on like people come to us and they're like overnight you know I, everything broke down i can't sleep i can this and i'm like overnight i yeah. didn't live with you but i can assure you that it didn't happen overnight it's like 30 years of like you know torturing this poor being you know mentally emotionally physically nutritionally all of it <laughs> so this is a way for people to help maybe restore rejuvenate yes. so many benefits, right? I mean, I've watched some videos of people who've come to Shape House and done this and hear them talk about the better sleep or, you know, they just feel more energy, they feel more clear, their skin is, is it clears up. There's a lot of chronic conditions, you know, people have like pains in their back or pains in their legs all the time. And it's like, because again, we're taking the trash out of the kitchen. The kitchen smells good. You know, when no. you do that and it feels better, it's like, that's what we're doing. We're taking the trash. People are treating sweat like it's this like second class citizen, you know, like we don't really care. It's like, well, it'd be like, you know, you drink all day and you don't ever go to pee. Your body would like explode. Sweating is a very important system that is not there by, you know, oh, you know, whoever created the body said, well, let's put that little system in there, you know, that just, no, it's like, it's a very deliberate part of the system to eliminate the toxicity that's in it. And a lot of what gets eliminated when you sweat does not get eliminated, eliminated another way. It's not like, you know, well, I pee a lot. It's like, well, yes, but it's not the same process and the same systems that eliminates that. And so, you know, there's people that are, I've heard recently, there are people that are injecting Botox in their armpits to make their bodies not sweat. And I heard that and I just cried. I just sat there like, oh, like what are you doing to your body? It's like you, 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 you remove the shoot to down the trash from your house. You know, it's like now it's going to be piling up. Yeah. Crazy. So the benefits are really, and I found out a lot of the benefits from watching people. You know, at first we had hundreds of people who came and 
I don't have insomnia, so I didn't know. But like this woman started coming and now she sleeps without sleeping pills, you know? Yeah, that's... That is really a gift because, you know, when you think of it, it's like managing our stress or rather managing our peace and, you know, mindful practices and all that. It's, it's kind of the new, we've gone as far as we can with the way people work out or the way people, you know, um, I think of it as like nutrition and um, athletism. It's like all that stuff. It's like we've explored. It's like we know. We know it's good for you to like, you know, do some cardio and it's good for you to drink enough water. It's like we've gone pretty far in all that, but restoring and rejuvenating and meditating and, and refilling the cup. We know nothing about that. I mean, we do when we do the kind of practices you and I do, but most people don't. And so they're treating the way you spoke of the car earlier. They don't put gas. And then they're surprised that midway the car like breaks down on the freeway. It's like, dude, it should have broken down like 17 miles away uh, earlier because, you know, we don't treat it well. And so sweating is a smart way. And this is really not a plug for sweating at Shape House. You can just, you know, sweat in your bathtub. I don't care. It's like just let your body sweat so it has a chance to eliminate everything that prevents it from functioning well, you know? Uh, Now, I I think I've sensed that intuitively because, you know, I I live in Utah. I live in the desert. And I love, I love the Southwest, you know, Arizona, New Mexico. And I love going to Phoenix when it's 110 degrees and I'll get in the car, you know, just sit, not turn on, not start the car, not turn on the AC and just feel the skin. That's a portable shape house. You've created a portable shape house. You're just missing this girl who brings you tea and oranges when you're done. I could use that, that cool towel. That's amazing. So obviously you've got big plans for yeah. Shape House. And I think there are people who are looking for this that don't even know they are yet, right? They're not yes. aware of it. So yeah. at some point, people listening to this will very likely be able to find this in whatever city they're in. Yes. But in the meantime, for those who want to experience this, what do they need to do? So one of the protocols we developed at the beginning when people would travel and, you know, they couldn't, because once you start sweating, it's a little bit like when you start doing, you know, facials and it's like your body now is like, I want my skin feels really dry. It's like, well, it is really dry. So you do something to, and those habits, which is what I want. I want people to start developing a sense of what it feels like to be detoxed. And then I don't need to tell them how often to come. It's not my business. It's like, I, I can tell you, try it, see what it feels like when your body functions optimally because you don't, you know, you remove the salt and the grains that are on the path of that liquid that's trying to basically fill you at 80%. So when you remove all that stuff, you create an environment where your body is just able to function so much better that when people would come to us and they would experience that and then they would leave and they'd be like, now I'm going to New York for three weeks. Well, now I have, we have stores in New York, but we didn't for a long time. So if you live in Wichita and we don't have a shape house, one of the ways is do it in your bathtub. So your knees have to be in the water. So that's an important piece. So if your bathtub is too small, go to a friend's house who has a bigger tub, but your knees have to be in the water. That's an important piece. Like you have to be immersed, you know? All the way down, to, down like to your neck. Yeah, kind of. I mean, not uncomfortably. Like, I don't, I don't need you to be like, you know, completely immersed. Like you barely can, you know, breathe or something. It, be comfortable. So your head is out of the water, but your knees have to be in the water and your whole body has to be immersed. And then you want to put ginger 
and lemons and make sure the lemons are organic. That's important because it's the heat is going to pull everything that's in the skin of that lemon and you don't need to press it or juice it. Just like cut it in half. I put four lemons, you know, cut in half. And so they're floating in my bathtub and ginger and ginger. If you can do it fresh and just grate it and do it fresh, it's great. If not, you can do it in powder. It, it works a lot better if it's grated. How much ginger? You know, I, I usually would do the size of the palm of my hand, like a like a root. You know, like how it sold. It usually sells as like a like a little cluster, mm-hmm. like one of those clusters. And I and I just grate it, and like it doesn't have to be. You don't need to remove the skin because it's going to happen in the hot water anyway. And get the water to be as hot as you can bear it. And then once you start sweating, that's the key. That's the thing that people may not want to do, but that's really where the the gem is. Is you want to stay in the water for twenty minutes. And you add hot water to maintain what's happening, but your body will. So the second you start sweating, which you'll feel, you know, when you take a bath, you have a little bit of sweat on your forehead. Let's say that's where it starts. Your body is sweating, but it's in the water, so you don't feel it. And so on your forehead, you feel that little, you know, kind of getting dewy. That's the starts of 20 minutes. And then you want to stay in that state for 20 minutes. And that will give you pretty much what you get when you come. So is, are you saying a total of 40 is 20 to get well, there and then another 20? It doesn't necessarily take 20 to get there. I don't know. It depends on the bathtub. It depends on your body. It depends on the temperature. Like it really depends on what you do. But once you start sweating, so say 10 minutes in, 15 minutes in, five minutes in, depending. After that, 20 minutes in the water. So, okay. So then once you feel the forehead get dewy, that's it. then it's, it's really, that's really what matters is when it starts to do that and whatever time it takes to do that, then you wait until it happens. But when you start, it, it shouldn't take too long. Mine probably, I mean, I have a pretty tall tub on purpose so I can sweat here sometimes, but um, maybe 10 minutes I'll start feeling pretty dewy and then 20 minutes. So even dudes can do this? Oh, particularly dudes. My God. <laughs> okay. I'm just checking, just making sure. I'm not violating any protocols or anything. No, it's all, it's good for everyone. And you'll see, you'll feel it. You'll lay down. You'll be a little tired because it sucked some stuff out of you. I don't recommend doing it. You know, if you're going out and planning on drinking a lot tonight because your body just worked hard to, you know, empty the trash. So give it a moment. Uh, But you can rest that night. It's like, you know, they used to do that as a, not exactly that, but you would do that when you had a fever and you kind of put the kid in hot and then you would put them in the blanket and they would like sweat it out, you know, that's what happens. So if you can go lay down and relax and try not to watch the news, you know, to not, because your body will feel very open and vulnerable because you literally open your pores and let some out, you know? Yeah. That's my recommendation. That sounds amazing. I want to experience it right now. Well, I want to finish the interview and then (laughs) then go buy ginger and lemon. I can imagine how I would sleep so soundly after that. It just sounds phenomenal. I am telling you, I, one of my best friends, Adam, the first time he came in, you know, some of my friends, it's bizarre to me. Like some of my friends, I've known about it for two years and they still haven't come, you know, they're kind of like, oh, I'll do it. It's like, whatever. They, they freak out. Like they don't want to try or whatever. Like I'm like, well, I I'll try anything at least once. My friend Adam, who actually has trouble sleeping, came after a long time. Like I, maybe I'd opened a year and a half or something and he came finally because I think it was my birthday and I was like, you are coming to sweat for my birthday. Like I made it like a... A thing and he came and I'm telling you the next morning he, he like texted me and he was just like I slept 10 hours straight and the guy is like insomniac wow he doesn't sleep that well he was just like he literally felt so rested 
Because that's the other thing. It's like something, not only do you sleep more when you sweat regularly, but it's not just that. You, 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 the way that you rest your body is more holistic. Again, so your hormones are more rested. Your digestive system is more rested. Your brain is more rested because you've hydrated. That's the other thing we didn't talk about. When you sweat regularly, you actually hydrate better, which is kind of crazy. But when you have toxins in your body, your body has a hard time letting the water and the liquids go to your organs because it's, it's busy and it's clogged and it's like, and also your organs are not stupid. They're like, I'm not letting you in. You're toxic. Like, I'm not letting water. That's why I've become a bit of a activist for drinking, you know, as clean as you can water. Yeah. Because otherwise you're actually, it's penetrating in your organs. It's going in there. So if you're drinking, you know, something that doesn't have, that has chlorine in it a lot and some of that stuff, it's kind of like, well, you're kind of putting the poison directly into your organs. Not a smart move. You know? yeah. No, I just recently read about these forever chemicals that yes. are in our water. Yes. Oh my goodness, these things we don't even know we've we've done. We're doing to ourselves. Yeah. 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 How much water should a person drink in a given day? Just I understand activity increases it. Sweating obviously would probably increase that. But just what's your answer to how do we know how much water we should drink in a day? <laughs> My cute answer is not enough. (laughs) You're not drinking enough as we speak. So people drink when they're thirsty and that's already far down the dehydration path. You know, when you drink because you're thirsty, like you feel that thirst, it's already like you've, you need to quench because you've already parched the, the inside. So first of all, there was something you said that's not exactly accurate. Yes, you drink more when you're sweating, like while you're sweating, we give you alkaline water, which is a clever way to get you to hydrate fast. Strangely, when you sweat regularly, you need less water. Interesting. People are downing, like I sometimes we see people coming to us and they're like downing like a gallon and a half, you know, like there's such a thing as too much water, by the way. Yeah, people can die from this. Yes, you can die. I mean, that even is extreme, but like even diluting your enzymes and it's just that there's so much that can happen from being too, you know, drenched. So there's that. Also, if you drink the wrong kind of water, your body can drink like 17 gallons, you won't be hydrated because it's, like I said, your, your body is very smart and it creates a buffer. So if you drink water that's toxic, like if you were to drink water from a pool, your body is like, it is not happening. You will pee directly. Like it will go directly to your bladder and it will not let it go to your organs because your body is incredibly, incredibly clever. But the other thing that was incredible, by the way, just as an aside, it's like people would drink all this water and they'd be like, don't I want to pee? while I'm in the bed like I don't want to you know like I'm sweating am I not going to want to go to the bathroom midway and it's like no because your body as you're drinking in the bed it knows to not bring it to your bladder it literally knows to give it to your body to sweat as like a wow. compliment you know hmm. brilliant it's just yeah. the body so brilliant and so um you know, I, I, I hate those questions. I'm sorry. I love you plenty. But I really don't like <laughs> questions because it depends. Yeah. It really depends on your life. You know, if you, if you have a life where you are detoxed and you do a lot of sweating regularly, you don't need as much as what the common culture is saying, you know. And also, I drink a water right now that's called Rising Springs. I'm going to plug for them. I don't I know the girl, but it's not. And we obviously don't benefit from it. But it's water, and if you, it's, it's actually in. No, it's not in Utah. It's in Idaho. the The source is in Idaho, and it's two and a half miles down on the ground, you know, underground, and it is nine point five alkaline without going through a machine. Meaning, in five years, that water will still be at the same alkaline level, which is not what you find at Whole Foods, by the way. Wow. Like, what's the the, the 
once the alkaline in the water is made alkalized, it, it's only two or three days. And so when you buy that from stores, it, there's a good chance it's not alkaline anymore. But that's besides the point. So good water is important. And, and when I drink that water, which is extremely nurturing and extremely hydrating, honestly, a couple of cups during the day and I feel super hydrated. So hard to answer that question. That depends. I've heard the latest... The latest number I feel guilty for not achieving is yeah. um, one half. So divide my body weight in half and yeah. then drink that many ounces. So here's the other thing. Do you remember at the very beginning when we talk about keeping your word? Yeah. What you just said, like even the concept of like, I should drink that much water and I don't drink it. Right. That's yet another way that you let your body down, that you let yourself down and that your body kind of records that it's like, oh, next time she says something probably won't mean it. Yeah. I'd rather say I drink as much as I can, or I'd rather say I drink really good water so I don't drink it as much as you know I used to because I don't need it. It's like yeah. I like to treat what I say. Like I turn my phrases so that it turns into something that's not like I let myself down and didn't do what I said I was going to do. Yeah. I can imagine. And I, I like that approach. I really do. And at the same time, I can hear how someone might interpret that as, oh, well, sure, you just let yourself off the hook. You just, you know, you just have a really low standard. It's easy to you know, but right. I know it's not true. explore that for themselves, right? Yes. Okay. So I want to turn now to the enlightening lightning round. If you're okay with that, I have about 10 questions. Okay. That I, that I like to ask each guest. I'm all yours. All right. So first question, uh, without using a box of chocolates in your response, please complete the following sentence. Life is like a hopscotch. Okay. A game of hopscotch. All right. Next question. What's something at which you wish you were better? Showing my humanity. Hmm. Okay. Next question. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? It would have the word love, and then there would be me and you. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it would be like love me and love you would be like being loved and, and being loved by myself and loving others. It would have something to do with that. Like, I would really love that. I'm actually, I just saw it as you were saying, I'm going to design one. <laughs> okay. That's great. Uh, what book, other than your own, have you gifted or recommended most often? The Little Prince. Mm, Saint Zupery, how say Saint Zupery? Saint Zupery. Yeah. yeah, right on. Uh, next question: You travel a lot. Mm-hmm. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel, to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Um, better sit, like make more money, so I can travel in better circumstances. Like better, better seat on the plane, better comfort. Oh yes, that makes a big difference, doesn't it? Especially those lay flat seats. Yes. What one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Hmm. Self criticism. Hmm. Okay. Obviously, stopping. Yes. Not starting. Yeah, not starting. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that clarification. Uh huh. In case you know. 
Um, I'm going to circle back to the question about The Little Prince. Okay. Why that book? Oh, because it has everything. My favorite one is um, when he goes, so The Little Prince is a series of stories. It's supposedly written for children, but absolutely not. And you haven't, if you have not read it as an adult, buy it today. That's how much I recommend it. I think I've gifted it. One year I bought 50 copies and that's all I gift everybody. So I'm really, it's the book I take to an island if I ever go there. Wow. So there's one story where, he meets someone who's a doctor, supposedly. So the little prince travels all these different planets and he meets all these different people and stories and it's kind of a tale of wisdom and philosophy. And so he goes to this place and meets the doctor and the doctor says, so the little prince says, so what do you do? What are you about? And the, the doctor said, well, I just invented a new medicine, a new pill. And, and the little prince says, well, what is it for? And he goes, it's for quenching thirst. Like you won't ever be thirsty again. And the little prince says, why? Why would you have invented that? And the doctor says, because you'd save time. You save at least 28 minutes a week by not drinking the water. And the little prince pauses and says, hmm, if I had 28 minutes, I would very slowly walk towards a fountain. <laughs> That's lovely. That's why, because it's poetic and it's not meant to hit your goals. And it's just a poetic way to remember what matters. I love that. What's one thing you wish every American knew? Can I go to every human on the planet and not just Americans? Is it I important? will accept that. However, <laughs> um, my request is, so that I think that's great. Let's start there. Okay. Go ahead. If it was everyone, if it, my wish for everybody would be that they realize the magic and the power they hold in their own hands to create lives that are meaningful to them, like that people actually would awaken to that. That's beautiful. Okay. Do you see why I don't want just Americans to have it? <laughs> sure. Absolutely. And, and at the same time, I just, I love the responses. Like I even asked this to, to one uh, woman. She's a, a Latina. And she said, do you mean every, what did she say? North North American, yeah. <laughs> you know, or something. Yeah. But just the different ways people answer yeah. that. And it's uh, more about more. Not yeah, less. it's more about more. Absolutely. Okay. What is the best relationship advice you've ever received and successfully applied? I feel like a broken record. Um, love yourself, forgive yourself, bring a healed as much as you can human to the relationship. Like the more, the more you heal yourself, the more you bring someone that can contribute and listen and not react and not project and not do all those things we do when we don't know who we are. Setting aside compound interest, mm -hmm. what's the most useful thing you've ever learned about money or what's the best thing you do related to money, either in your business or your personal life? I'm so excited you asked that. Oh my God, I'm so excited. I just started a practice. So a friend of mine that I respect, you may know him, Dave Burns. Do you know Dave? I don't. I don't know Dave yet. Super great guy. And he also does some masculine, feminine work and beautiful guy. Um, but we were talking about money and he said, do you know that the spirit of money is feminine? 
And I was like, no, it was like, it's fickle. And it's like, you know, he has all these words to like describe, you know, why the spirit of money, you know, was more of a feminine energy. And it's also a relationship. We have a relationship with money the way we have a relationship with people and with ourselves and all of that. And food. And food, exactly. And so my new practice, which I started 21 days ago, and I'm going for 60 days, so we'll report. But already I can tell you there's very, very subtle but very powerful shifts. So I have, he gifted me, as we kind of named this uh, a spirit, like the spirit of money, he gifted me a little, um, what do you call them, a pawn from a chessboard that someone had carved for him. Like it's hand carved, you know, and he took one of the pieces to give it to me. And we kind of jokingly and sweetly said, when I'm done with my practice, I will hand it to somebody else. Like we're going to make it like a chain of like everybody can do it, right? So the, the pawn itself becomes filled with this beautiful energy. And so I spend 10 minutes with it in the morning with my pawn. I literally sit on my bed and talk to my pawn. I'm so glad you asked. And we have this delightful conversation about, I would like more of you in my life because I want to be more of service, but I also want to travel business every time I travel. And so it's like a combination of like sweet and happy and service, but also betterment of my life. And 10 minutes, I just chat with my thing for 10 minutes. That's my practice. And that's my best advice. Treat it like it's a relationship. I'm reminded of this idea, what you focus on expands. Yes. Yes. Can you imagine if you focus on it with love and not a sense of lack and not a sense of, you know, entitlement. Like it really, like I don't treat my friends with entitlements. I don't treat my friends with, you know, a sense of lack. I know exactly how to be a friend. So be a friend to many. Does the pawn talk back? (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I'll tell you, sometimes I did get like a couple of days ago, I got a suggestion for something, and I may invest in a, in a venture of a friend of mine that was suggested in that moment, which I treated as very sacred, of course. Wow, that's great. I love that you even knew, day 21 of 60. That's, oh, that's yeah. awesome. Well, that's oh, yeah. great. Before we get to this about the creative process, about your create, creative process, uh, I want to be sure that I get this in here, which is two things. One, is as an expression of gratitude to you for making time to share of your wisdom, your experience uh, with me and everyone listening. I've gone on kiva.org and made a $100 microloan on your behalf to a female entrepreneur in Pakistan. Aww. So Nassim, named Nassim, she's a 42-year-old woman who's running a private school, and she'll use this to repair the school building and also to purchase furniture. Oh, that's incredible. Thank you. Incredibly. Nothing could make me happier. Thank you. Oh. And then the other thing that I want to include here and not just leave it to the very end is if people want to learn more from you or connect with you or learn more about Shape House or anything you're up to, what would you have them do? You know, shapehouse.com is online and it's a very good source of information. We're on Instagram, shapehouse, and then my, my name is Sophie Shish, C-H-I-C-H-E, and that's my Instagram, Sophie Shish. Um, that's kind of the best ways, you know. I mean, you can always, if there's something specific that I can help or be of service, um, my email is sophie at shapehouse.com. You can always email me if there's something I can do that I can do. <laughs> People ask me sometimes, they ask me things that I'm like... <laughs> No, I do not know how to raise an elephant, but thank you for asking. Like weird, weird things. But if it's something that I can help without involving me stopping my life too much, 
I'd be happy to support. So that's, that's one great. other one. Okay. So the final part of our interview here, let's talk about the creative process. So you studied journalism. Mm-hmm. You know a thing or two about writing. You've written one book. You've actually written two. You've published one. Um, who has been important for you in your development as a writer, and what did you learn from them? Oh, the first thing that came to mind, lots of people, because I read and I, you know, talk a lot. So um, the first thing that came to mind, though, is when I was first hired to be a correspondent for a French magazine, and I lived in L.A., and we met, and with the head of the magazine, the editor-in-chief, and he was really wanting someone in the West, on the West Coast to discuss psychology, novelties, and everything that was happening here. And we met, and there was this really funny thing where he said, tell me three things that are on your mind that interest you right now. And I said, body image, you know, like I was losing weight, and I was very interested in that process, and parenting, because I just had a child, and creativity, as a matter of fact, as, as a process to get to know yourself. And he laughed, and he pulled the three next issues, and literally one was like parenting, creativity, and, you know, weight, whatever the title was. Wow. In the three big dossiers for the next three months were about that. And he was like, well, I guess you're writing for one of, one of each for each one, you know. And so, and as I walked away, I turned around and we had this really sweet moment where I said, but wait, you, you don't know if I can write. And he said, you can speak, you can write. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the biggest advice anyone's ever given me, which is write like you speak, you know, and like people that think, I mean, I'm not a poet. I mean, I write what I write, but people think they have to make these really complicated sentences. And, you know, the other advice that someone gave me that I love about writing was have an idea per thought. I mean, a sentence per idea, rather, I'm sorry, an idea per sentence and a sentence per idea. Like write in a way that if, if you're writing that kind of book, obviously, you know, that's not a role. That's my role. Let's just say for what I write. But it's like sentences where you're like one idea, two ideas, three ideas. Like by the end of the sentence, you're like, oh, that's a lot of ideas. Like I make shorter sentences and every sentence adds something to the conversation or to the writing I'm doing. And it's only one idea per sentence and only one sentence per idea. It sounds easy. <laughs> It's one of those. It's like, I don't know if I do that because I'm skilled or because I'm gifted. You know, I don't know. Yeah. So earlier in this conversation, you mentioned that you devoted six months to get this book that shall remain titleless until you publish it. Until it's born, yes. Yeah. Tell me, what did that look like for you? Because clearly, you know, life didn't stop Mm -mm. for you to get your book written. There's never a good time to do mm-hmm. this. It's never easy. <laughs> but what did you do to, that allowed you to get your book done? What was the process or the approach that you followed? So that's such really good questions. Thank you. The, well, the obvious one is get your butt in a chair and type. <laughs> that's like, people don't realize they're like, I want to write a book. And it's like, well, are you sitting? Are you writing? It's like, no, no, not really. It's like, okay, well, <laughs> In order to run a marathon, you've got to put the shoes on and start running. Like, that's really no way around that. 
Um, what was powerful for me was I went to a retreat, actually. A friend of mine organized these retreats where for five days you read together during the day and then you spend a little time with her and she helps a little bit the structure. I had My challenge was a bit of the structural of the book. Like I, I, I could see the stories individually being really powerful, but I couldn't exactly see the thread. That's the other thing. That's my biggest advice in life. Find out what you're really good at and then be okay to ask for help for the things that you're not. It's a really, like, I mean, it sounds really obvious, but people are weird. It's like they want to do the whole thing, particularly, I'm sorry, of your genre. Like men are particularly wired that way where it's like they have to figure it all out. It's like ask questions, meet people that know what to, you know. So this woman organized these retreats and I decided to go. It was a five-day thing. And I walked out of there with my outline, I have to say. She was very helpful. I was inspired by what she said. And together we came up with the structure. And once you have the structure, then you're in heaven because then you just fill in. It's like having the bones of your meal. You know, you know, there is an appetizer, an entree and a dessert. And now you just have to go get the ingredients, you know. And so that to me was the very big thing. I work really well early in the morning. So and I happen to love waking up early. My rhythm as I was writing this book became a little bit crazy, to be honest, because I didn't have that much time to write it. And so I would wake up often at like five, and I would work till 830. And that was generating new content, like nobody, no noise, the house is quiet, you know, the, the world is not awake yet, you know. And so I would spend three and a half hours, which honestly, when you're sitting down, you're writing, it's a lot of hours. Like it's a lot of writing if you're focused, you know. Um, at 8.30, I would do my day, you know, emails, work, manage, whatever, do my thing. And around 11, and that's, a, that's really a trick that I discovered days into starting, is I have a friend who was also writing a book and I invited him to come write with me. Meaning he would arrive here at 11 and we would write from 11 to 3. And that was more editing. So the days, the hours during the day were editing hours for me and then generating early morning. And so sometimes he would read what I wrote and sometimes I would read what he wrote and we would support each other with like, yeah, let's try something else. Or I'm watching you. You're not writing. What are you doing? You know, and you're just like somehow the fact that he would show up at 11 to write made a huge difference because all of a sudden I had an appointment with somebody else, you know, not just yeah. myself. And my agent reminded me recently and because I was like, it's not going very fast. And I was like complaining because I'm impatient and whatever. And she was like, some people write their memoirs in freaking 10 years. Like, shut up. Like she was just like, <laughs> mad at me for being so. So that was a good trick. Um, the other trick for me was the tools. You know, make sure your computer's charged. Make sure your pens or whatever you want to write, like your, 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 your things. Make sure your things. Like for me, it was important to print my stuff and read it on paper. So stupid thing, but like not having ink for my printer, you know, which yeah. my process. Yeah. You know, you're familiar with David Allen probably, do you know David? Sure, getting things done. So I, I did just getting things done when I was 16 years old. Like it's odd because I met him and I loved his energy and I studied. I'm a, I'm a very deep studier of his work. I actually taught it for a minute. Um, but it takes 25 minutes about for your brain to reach a capacity of, especially in creativity. If you're doing mundane tasks, it's fine. But if you interrupt your process, you know, so having my three and a half hours in the morning like that from 5 to 8.30 where no one knew to bother me or everyone knew not to bother me rather, <laughs> 
it, it, it's like there's no need to ramp up. It's like I just stay up there and it's like stay and stay and stay. And sometimes I don't like what I write, but I write it. So just my hands keep moving and then I erase. It's no big deal. You can always edit, you know? So get it out, get it out, get it out, get it out. Even if you're like, I don't know how to go from this to this, write it anyway. Yeah. It doesn't have to be perfect. You know, that's the point of editing. And that's yeah. the point of asking people help. So I think less ego is a good advice. You know, just go at it like with a little bit more humility and it doesn't have to be perfect. You're just trying to tell a story that hopefully will inspire one person, you know, and yeah. that's, that's worth the exercise. So if I understand what you're saying, that all of that writing from the 5 to 8.30 and then the editing from 11 on, that took place once you had the outline from the retreat, the structure. Yeah, so actually, yes, yes. Now it's all occurring within that, right? Because I've experienced that in myself and in talking to and working with other writers that when they don't have a strong sense of the skeleton, of the framework, that... It's impossible. It, Honestly, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I would find that very difficult to write. Yeah. So how did you deal with what I think is an inevitability for everyone who engages in a creative process, which is the inner critic that like, okay, yes, this is the structure. Like how did you manage to preserve the confidence that the structure was good enough and it was the way it was. And then what you would write was, you know, worth telling. And like, how did you, how did you become the victor over your inner critic? I would say that was probably the work before. <laughs> That's the work I was telling you about before. Yeah. Like I didn't do it while I, I did not experience a lot of, I mean, I write a sentence. I don't like it. I erase it or I change it. Or I like, I don't, I'm not super attached to spitting out like the perfect sentence Yeah. because I have worked on my inner critic and, and then I would test it. Like that's a good exercise too. It's like, you know, put it out, like ask a friend, to read it and it's like mm, I don't feel your heart give me more heart or I don't get the story like what's going on from this to this and not take it personally just take it as like you you know how to fill in the blank because it's your life I mean I'm talking about memoirs not novels everything I'm saying is about you know personal writing which can turn into a book it could be a journaling like this is not about novels I know nothing about that so yeah. nothing I'm saying is about that <laughs> so is this this process that you followed from 5 to eight thirty? is that what you observed for six months Yes. Wow. Saturday and Sunday included. That's pretty hardcore. That's mm -hmm. pretty disciplined. It was. It really was. But you know what? It would be like saying my beloved wants to spend three hours with me in the morning. Like I developed a relationship with this book that was so precious and so beautiful and so sacred. I would wake up and I'd be like, mm, let's go, you know, like this joyful. And you can't do that if the whole three hours you're pounding on yourself as, you know, not being a good writer. So yeah. you have to do self-love work first, <laughs> that it becomes a pleasant experience and a joyful experience. What rituals did you have around your writing? I mean, aside from making sure the printer toner was, <laughs> was in there. But not a small one, you know, make sure your tools are up and at it. Yeah. One of my rituals was um, the time for me felt very much like a ritual, you know, waking up on time. And, you know, um, there was something about, that's funny, I didn't see it as a ritual, but it is a ritual. Like, um, not that I'm here to share private things, but I sleep naked. And writing started with getting dressed. Like I would put on 
a particular outfit that to me is like particular sweatpants, particular top that felt comfortable, not irritating to my skin. Like there was a little bit of like, I'm running a marathon, I better put my good shoes on a little bit. So there was that, there was the getting dressed and kind of getting in the mindset, like my body, I think, knew that it was like, okay, we're doing it. I purchased a um, tray that had a pillow underneath and I glued my computer to that. I Velcroed my computer to that. So it became super comfortable. Like I eliminated, this is my ritual. It's not really a ritual. I eliminate anything that is not prompting me to write. Hmm. Give me an example. Um, the wrong lighting, the too heat, my legs. I don't like the computer like that. Uh, I like sitting in bed, but not on the, like I would do my writing in bed and my editing on the couch because it felt comfortable and the position was comfortable. And so I would eliminate, like I drink hot water. It's the first thing I do in the morning. So I would go downstairs and live in a loft. So I would, I sleep upstairs and I would come down and make myself my hot water, make myself a lemon. And maybe a, a little bit of a ritual was, going back up the stairs, just kind of say something to myself, like, enjoy your writing, you know, like have a good time. Like I would say to a friend who's going on a trip, you know? Yeah. A little bit of that. That's great. Did you write or do you like to write with music or without music? So completely no music. If I'm alone at the house and there's no noise, if there's any kind of noise, I put music and I have a list. I have a playlist that's a combination of Bach and Mozart, Mozart that is really, it's dynamic enough that I don't want to, you know, nose down, nor dynamic so much that I can't focus because it's like, you know, the Beethoven <laughs> symphonies and I'm like totally hyped. When I wrote my first book, interestingly, I was obsessed with Wilco. I don't know if you know the band Wilco. Yep. Yep. But I wrote my book to Hummingbird and Jesus, etc., and like three songs on repeat. And I mean, I cannot hold my book without hearing the sound, like immediately. The, I mean, I'm talking hours and hours and hours of it. So each book probably will have its own vibe from where I'm at. You know, like I yeah. guess the first one was more about Wilco and this one is more about Mozart. Right on. Both very talented. Yeah. Tell me where... And how you've already told us about your writing buddy or your editing buddy who came over at 11. Yep. Where and how, where, when, how, who did other people factor into this? Editor, uh, you've talked a little bit about your agent here, any, anybody else in the process. And, and maybe this is also a place where you could talk about a book proposal and a publisher. Yeah. Um, so that's the part where you need a little bit of magic. Um, and my life is very well organized around that. And so one day I was doing a speech and in the speech, I said something like, you know, with all the work I've done and all the contributions I've made, whatever, I still sometimes wonder if I'm contributing enough to other people's lives. Like it's kind of a thing for me to wonder that. And there was this woman in the front row. She was noticeably overweight and I was talking a lot about that. And she followed me after the thing and she grabbed me and she was like, I, I forbid you to speak like that because even if it's just me, you changed my life tonight. And some of the things you said, I don't know. I didn't know them. I've been suicidal. You've given me hope. She did this 
incredibly moving thing. And I, wow. I will tell you, in the book, there will be a sentence for her. I don't know her name. I don't know anything about her. But I will say enough that she can recognize herself. And if she can ever come see me at a book signing, that would be an incredible blessing because she changed my life. I got in my car and I basically had a talk with myself around the lines of like, enough. Enough of, am I enough? Is there something? It's like, my experience is my experience. It's not more. It's not less. It's helped this one young woman. I don't care if it's all it does. Enough of this like ego trippy of like, can I, should I, do I have enough to say, blah, 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 blah. Like enough with that conversation. And I did stop that conversation that day. And the next day I called seven of my friends, eight, eight of my friends. And I said, I'm ready to have an agent. Do you have anyone in your world that can be that or has that kind of capability or and, you know, some of them were Gay Hendricks, you know, people that are already published authors that could maybe direct me to their agents and things like that. So I have a network of people. We all do. So reach out to that. And I said, I'm ready for an agent. And I got four returns of my sister this, my friend that. And one person said, do you realize that there are people from William Morris which is where my agent is, that sweat at Shape House and they love you. They love Shape House. They love what you did. Do you know about that? And I was like, no. And I met them the next day and we fell in love, really fell in love with each other. They've become dear, dear friends. And that's why I mean by a little magic, you know? And then then I started writing and then I started writing some more and then I wrote some more. I mean, writing is really about writing. People are like, I'm writing a book. I'm like, when is the last time you typed something? And they're like, more, two years. I'm like, we're not not writing a book, you know? Um, So the proposal, so my agent is at WME, which is a really solid agency, obviously. And she's walked me through every step of the way. So the first thing I did is send her something. She was like, just send me anything, whatever you have, send me something. And then I sent her two stories that I had written that were from the book and very much had the mindset of the book. And she called me and she said, it's stunning. Like your writing is really stunning and I love it. And let's start the process. And then I said, what, you're my agent? And she was like, "Uh, hell yeah. Wow. And then she guided me through the entire thing and, we are, you know, we're very advanced in the process. It's very exciting. I'm, I'm really happy for you. That's, that is a magical story. Thank you. That's great. Okay. So just a, just a few more questions. How aware were you during the drafting of your reader? What was that like? It's really a good question too. Uh, I kind of want to say not a lot while the writing was happening and a lot when the editing was happening. Mm. So I attempt to have very, very little critical entrance in my brain when I write. I just write. Like someone would play a guitar and start composing. You don't sit there going like, oh, I wonder if my aunt who lives next door is going to like this piece. You know, you, you, you write. You're just playing. You're just in it. There's no noise about it. You're just putting it out. Then it's the opposite job, as you know. Editing is all critic. (laughs) The grammar, the sentence, the clarity, the meaning, the meaningfulness, all of it, you know, just like it's like a a war zone for me at that point. You know, it's just like, who's going to like this? Is this redundant? Is this relevant? Is that something that can be of service to someone? I really love that your interview was started from that place because my life is very much about that. And I, and sometimes it's hard because you have a poetic sentence and you like the way it sounds, but it's not advancing anything. It's just making you happy because you put the words together and it sounds good, you know, but that's, 
that's grief you have to have. You know, you have to have a relationship with loss. Like one of my favorite stories, favorite, favorite stories in the book, my agent asked me to remove it from the book. And I was like, you just asked me to kill one of my children. Like, and it's not like the story is not good. She loves the story. She just like, it does not fit in the coherence of the book. And that every time she's read the book, which she's read a few times now, she's like, it's like <laughs> the sound of like a screeching halt because it's something else. And it's, and she's right. She's right. But it was hard. It was hard because it's a very central part of my life. And it was really hard to let go. And then, you know, I can write it as something else, a blog or something else. Is that answering your question? Yeah, absolutely. And that reminds me, who was it? Kill Your Darlings? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Part of part of the creative process. Yes. What's the what's the best money you've ever spent as a writer? That retreat. Going on retreat on, on I mean whatever form that takes, but having a coach, having someone who could part of my suffering when I was starting was to not know what was good and what was not good. Mm. You know, not have a mirror that reflects it's like you'd be singing for a, a group of people that don't hear. And it's like you can't tell if you're, you know, you just cannot tell if what you're saying is lending remotely. And so having, spending money to get someone who was, I respected, you know, find someone you respect, like don't do something like that with someone that you would not trust what they say. Like I, I picked someone that had done retreats with friends of mine that had written books before that I really like the depth and I could, I could see the thread of the kind of work this woman did. So I did that and that was the best money I've ever spent. Wow. What just, um, is it someone that you'd feel comfortable telling us their name? Maybe others would benefit from? Yes, of course. Her name is Linda Silverstein and she does a retreat in Carmel. It's called Carmel on the beach, I want to say. Um, and it's a five day thing or four days sometimes. I mean, she, she changes it and she's incredible. Yeah. Sounds pretty good. No, there's someone else. If you're local to LA, you have to be local in LA. There's a guy, his name is Jack Grapes. And I think he teaches stuff online as well. He did a, he did a, he developed a whole method that's called method writing, kind of take on method acting, mm-hmm. which has to do with like raw as hell, like go to your gut, you know, uh-huh. right from there. And it's a seven week, I want to say, and you go every Tuesday night, I want to say, I mean, all that is, don't quote me, yeah. but something like that. You go every week for a number of weeks and you present your work, you read to a group and it gives you a different exercise and then you read to the group and you read, you're able to, you read the faces, not just your reading, you read yeah. what's happening. They're laughing, they're not, they're poignant. They come at the end and say, oh my God, that sentence changed my life, you know? Wow. So you, sounds- build, you build your skill that way. Yeah, that, sound, that sounds great. How do you think about promotion of the book? And some of this ties in, uh, there's maybe a question that precedes this is, when you began the project, how did you think of success? Like, how did you define success for the project? The reason why that woman, what that woman was so relevant for me is that I reduced the scale by 70 million of whoever many would be a huge success. I was like, I don't care. It's like, if all this work helps this woman make a choice to have a happier life and not decide to off herself in this particular example, not that she really gave me that, complete like you know you but somehow what I said really really moved her and so that reduced the pressure by a lot it was just all of a sudden it was just like if listen if three people including my cousin you know gets a little bit of value from reading this then I I guess I was never I don't really care to be honest with you 
I don't really care. I mean, at some point, of course, when you do something, you want people to receive it, but that cannot be your engine. That just cannot be, as long as you have the engine of service, don't get me wrong. I'm definitely about contributing something. I've worked hard on getting this inner life to be healthy. And I, a lot of people can benefit from some of the, what I've learned. And so to me, it's become a simple, I just want to contribute. I just want to put it out and say, hey, you know, this is what could work for you. So promoting for me is the extension of the quality. So if what I did, Shape House was the same way. People were like, well, how was your marketing? And I was like, people come and they tell everybody they know. <laughs> it's not, it's yeah. not, I don't do anything other than I deliver incredible service and impeccable, you know, experience to people. But people would literally come, especially at first, my God, we would have someone come and they'd be like, the next Christmas gift to everybody they knew, you know, was yeah. a session at Shape House. You know? that, that's how you know you're onto something when you're, yeah. you're creating evangelists. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so my final question for you is, you know, anybody who's listened all the way through to this point. I can't imagine who that is. (laughs) (laughs) People, obviously, who are resonating with you and people who are interested in the creative process and taking what they know and their experience and sharing it with others in a way that makes a difference. What advice or encouragement do you give to that person? To anywhere in their life, just anything? Yeah, let's say two, two parts. One, if it's about writing. So actually taking their ideas, put, making them clear, putting them between you know, two covers, sending them out into the world in a way that makes a difference. So that's one. And then just maybe the broader one that's just in general in life. Well, the first one is super clear to me. The first one is nobody can say what you will say, just you. So it's a responsibility. For me, it became like an, a painter teacher offered that to me because I, I don't know how to draw, but I'm a great artist. And she broke that ceiling for me. Of, but I don't know how to draw a face. You know, that doesn't look like a face. And she was like, I don't give a shit. It's like what you have to say, only you can say it. If someone wants to see your face, they can take a picture. Like, this is not about that. Like your interpretation of the world through your eyes and whether it's a collage or a a painting, you know, any of that. And that really transferred very well for me in the writing process. Like my story, nobody has that story. Maybe three people will be interested, but that is not for me to decide. So if you have a story and if you have something that you feel has a contribution to somebody else, whether it's one person or 70 million, do it. Like don't do it. And then you'll know because you'll show it to someone and they'll say, Oh my God, like that's what happened to me. I showed it to people and people said, Oh my God, it's beautiful. Let's do something with it. If they had said, "Mm, it's shit, I would have been like, okay, I'll do something else. You know, like, but don't sabotage because maybe what you have to say, someone is going to explode their beautiful life because of you. So don't, don't be stupid and don't be Mm -hmm. ego trippy and think that it has to be, successful or what's the point we don't know yeah. we never know and then for the world in general ha hmm. um whatever your spiritual groundings are spend time there you know meditate walk on the beach i don't care what you do go to your church doesn't matter but spend some time have a date with your spiritual life would be my advice because that's where everything is, you know, so go get it, go get it there. Yeah. I love that. Okay. Well, Sophie, I've been so inspired by our conversation. 
Thank you. I was inspired by your questions. My God, you were fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. No, this was, this was fun. I learned so much and I feel like this, this is exactly, you know, what I can use because I'm in the middle of my own project. In there. Some ways feel you call like me I'm offline. I can coach you. <laughs> That'd be great. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education or who live in conflict zones. There's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.